may be seated. Amen. You may be seated for sure. At this time as well, we're going to dismiss our children downstairs. So we send them with God's blessing. How's everybody doing this morning? Good? It's a solid CNY answer. Shut up, guy. We don't want you to ask us these kinds of questions. Crazy. 18 years ago, I started seminary. That's just crazy to me, like, just to think about it that way. Like, seems like a long time ago. In other, in other ways, it seems just like yesterday. I had a lot of fun in seminary, learned a lot, uh, worked very little, as my family made fun of me. Uh, so, like, one, one guy asked me what I, if I still do nothing for a living while I was uh, in seminary. And I reassured him the, the painstaking, uh, the, the ardor of, uh, of reading at Starbucks all day uh, reassured him of my diligence. Anyway, uh, it does seem like yesterday, and uh, I want to share just a brief story uh, that, uh, about one of my friends, uh, one of my he- fellow Hebrew students. Okay, his name was Solomon, uh, but we called him Shlomo, okay? because if you're in Hebrew and you're from uh, Syracuse and you don't really know how to pronounce Hebrew at all, uh, you're really bad at saying it, okay? So uh, the Hebrew word for Solomon, uh, we in some uh, jacked up uh, English, basically uh, we call them Shlomo. So imagine if your nickname in class was Shlomo. Uh, anyway, so uh, we called him Shlomo. I'm going to tell you a story about Shlomo. So Shlomo, uh, we were all hanging out in the library doing our thing, and uh, we had some paper or project that was due, and uh, we all approached the counter and, and Shlomo uh, tried to take out some books. And uh, if you know librarians, good librarians, they're a little OCD, right? That's kind of, you know, the, 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 the decimal system. Do we even use that anymore? Like, the, do we, yeah. We organize our books in a particular way. And, you know, there are certain policies and procedures that need to be followed or else. Well, Shlomo went to take out uh, a couple resources And uh, the OCD librarian said, sorry, Solomon, uh, but you owe the library late fees for unreturned books. So unless you pay the fees, you cannot take out any more books. You can feel the tension already. Um, And uh, Shlomo looked at her confidently, and as far as he could tell, justly. And he said, I don't owe you anything. Jesus paid it all. (laughs) Shlomo was really good at manipulating sound doctrine for his own benefit. We laughed hysterically. And I wonder if there are some of you as well who are skilled in such theological matters so as to manipulate certain truths for your own personal gain. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. All silliness aside, that statement is central to what we know and believe about the gospel. Right? That our debts in Christ have been paid. 
Amen? Colossians 2, which was read as the assurance of pardon today, says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of, of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Praise be to God. Jesus has indeed paid it all. This record of debt that stood against us with all the legal demands has been fully paid. We no longer owe God for those things based on the cross. Amen. This check was written by Christ on the basis of God's mercy toward us, which we have been talking about for years in the book of Romans. Now we have this shift that we've been emphasizing. What do we do with that kind of mercy? A mercy that takes upon and pays for fully a debt that we owed. What do we do with that kind of mercy? So we continue that conversation again today. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Romans 13, 8 through 10. Grab your Bibles. Grab your phones. Or if you're even lazy enough, we can put it on the screens for you. Uh, Or maybe you don't have a Bible. And by the way, if you need a Bible, we would love to give you one. So you just let one of us know, and we will provide a free one as a gift. But uh, let's turn our attention to the Scriptures. Verse 8 says this in chapter 13, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. This is God's word, and all God's people said, amen and amen. One of the most helpful things you can do in trying to learn how to interpret Scripture is to, to open your eyes to any repeated words and phrases in the passage that you have read or reading. So right away, uh, with that clue in mind, you'll see the word, oh, which was a, is a repeated word from our previous passage. Verse 7, pay all to what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Verse 8, owe no one anything. So we want to understand what's going on in this passage right there. You see a repeated word, owed. It's about what we owe. He's saying, owe no one anything. Are you kidding me? Owe no one anything? 22 trillion dollars is the national debt. 
$22 trillion. You see all those numbers up there? That's a lot of money. $13.51 trillion is all household debt in the United States. It's all debt, okay? All of it. 13.5 household debt. Credit card balances, $420 billion, $220 million. Just credit card balances in the United States. All right? The average household has $6,929 in credit card debt that they're carrying all the time. Just the average household. Oh, no one anything. <laughs> oh, no one anything. To a culture in so much debt as we are to hear these words. Now understand this. In saying, oh, no one anything, uh, what's not being taught here is you should never have any debt or come under any obligation to anyone financially. It's not what it is saying. The point of Paul is trying to make is, is if you have a debt, pay it. Understand? If you have a debt, pay it. Make sure you steward your resources in such a way to ensure that any debt that you incur is a wise one and is a payable one. And if you incur that debt, pay it back. That, that there would be, a, a, um, a, a, it would hurt the witness of the Christian, I should say, for them to not pay back their debts. Be faithful to the lender. Psalm 37 verse 21. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. This is stewardship of life. We're not to take on debts that we cannot pay. We're to steward our resources in such a way to pay them back and so that we can put on display the greater quality that is very much in the heart and nature of God, generosity, giving. Very instructive for us in the midst of our financial climate, I think. It's not to say never take out a debt. It says that if you have a debt, make sure you're faithful to pay it. Owe no one anything. Be faithful to the lender. To not do so is what Psalm 37 calls wickedness. Right? Owe no one anything. See that repeated word. But there's another repeated word. And there's an exception that comes to this. Pay back your debts. Except you can't pay this one back ever. Except this one. That you can't pay back ever. And that next repeated word that we see is love. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Love is a repeated word four times here. I'm sorry, five times. Love is a perpetual obligation that we have in Christ Jesus. Love is what is commanded here. Owe no one anything except... To love each other. And I think before we even move on to talk about the implications of that, we have to ask the question, what do we mean by love? When Paul says, love each other, fulfill that never-ending obligation, that perpetual obligation that you have, uh, what is it? 
when Paul says to love each other. Culture says love is what? A feeling. Love is a feeling. Google it, you're going to see. I think I'm just lying here, creating the, Google it. What is love? What is the definition of love? Bottom line, love is feeling good about people that make you feel good. It's all about feelings. It's all about emotions. That's love. That's not what Paul is getting at. He's not saying feel good about those that make you feel good. He's not driving ultimately at an emotion when he's saying love each other. Now understand this, he's not necessarily saying that emotions aren't involved in love. That's not what he's saying. But that's not primarily what he's prescribing for us in Christ, those who know God. Culture may say that it's a feeling, but Scripture says something entirely different about the nature and the essence of love, the very love that's being commanded here. Right? We saw in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, staying in the same book, that love is a dem- has been demonstrated. If we want to understand the nature and the essence of love, look at its perfect and ultimate manifestation of what it is. Romans 5.8, God shows his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? Uh, uh, someone might die for a good person, right? That's, they might do something nice for someone they feel good about. But God's love is entirely different. Love, as defined in the nature of God, is completely different. No, God shows us what love really is. God defines us, defines for us the nature and essence of love. It is a decisive, demonstrated action to do something good on behalf of another at great personal cost. That's what love is. Love is in the nature of God, demonstrated in the action of God in Christ on the cross that, that, does, that brings about a good result in the lives of people that don't deserve it to bring about a good result uh, 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 by giving up self at great personal cost. 1 John 4, 8, 9 says this. God is love. So when Paul's prescribing love, he's prescribing and, 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 and commanding us to do something that is consistent with the very nature and essence of God himself. Represent that. Display that. Because God is love. And he goes on to say, verse 9 and 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and what? Sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That just means the wrath-absorbing sacrifice that satisfied God's wrath on sin. What is love? God is love. What is the demonstration of God's love? Jesus Christ coming, taking on our form, dying in our place, taking it at personal cost for the saving and benefit of those who do not deserve it, his enemies. Very different than culture's understanding of love. That's the kind of love that Paul is talking about. That's the kind of love that he's illustrated over the last 11 chapters. That's the kind of love that he says, let love be sincere, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good, from Romans 12, 9. 
So when Paul is talking about love fulfilling that obligation, that's what he's saying. He's saying have an affectionate action for the good of another person, even if it costs you everything. That's what he's saying. He's saying sacrifice for the good of, I'm sorry, for the pursuit of another person's good. And it's not at the expense of your own joy. I love how John Piper defines love in his book, Desiring God. Finding joy in the joy of the beloved. Taking joy in losing everything for the benefit of somebody else. That's love. That's love. That's what Paul is prescribing here. Sacrifice. Decisive action that brings about good in someone else's life. So much more than the mere sentimentality that we have in 2019 world in which we live. So much more than the bumper sticker niceties about tolerance and coexistence. No. It's about sacrifice. Joyfully, willingly, decisively. Seeing another person's need. Taking initiative to meet that need, even at great personal cost. This is the nature of our God. This is the nature of the gospel that we preach and declare and love and enjoy and rest in that brings about peace. That's what love is, and that is what Paul is saying is our perpetual obligation to one another. That's what Paul is prescribing. That's the call upon the Christian community, upon the church. Love is our perpetual obligation to one another in response to God's great love for us. You see, that's the wonderful thing about this command. There's no one, there's no, nothing that is more loved than the church. So it is a loved people that are being commanded to love people. What he's uh, provided, he prescribes. Do you understand? It's not that we, if we love each other a lot, then God will love us. No, that's backwards order. Because God loves us. Because we are the most loved people in the world. And I'm not saying that God just feels so good about us. Like, yay, feels good. No, it said we have been recipients of the demonstrative action, the decisive action of God in Christ who died in our place for our sins. We are the recipients of all of that love, a love unlike any other. And now that love that is provided to us, poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, is now one that prescribed, we're the people that are, have been provided that love and now prescribed to live that out. Such a wonderful privilege. But it is indeed a perpetual obligation, a debt that we can never fully repay. We keep owing, we keep loving. It never goes away. Origen said this, let your only debt that is in that is unpaid, be that of love. A debt you should always be attempting to discharge in full, but will never succeed in discharging. Owe no one anything except 
to love each other. I don't know if it's the NIV or the New American Standard. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continual debt to love one another. Such an awesome thing. Love is a perpetual obligation that we have toward one another. That's what we're called to. And yet we have another word that repeats itself here in this passage. It's not one that we like all that much. Law. Or commandment. We have owing. We have loving. Yay, love! Now we have law or commandment. How do these things coincide? How do these things relate? I mean, right? What do they possibly have in common, law and love? It seems like law and love really compete with one another. That if you have laws, then you can't have love. If you have love, then there's the removal of all laws and expectations. It's about spontaneity and freedom. No obligations or restrictions. So how can the scriptures bring together two things that would be so easily competing with one another in our own mind? What relationship do they share together? Love is indeed our perpetual obligation. And the text goes on to say that, that, that law and love relate. That when we love each other, we both fulfill and sum up the law. Look at what it goes on to say, the text. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. It goes on to say, verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So to say that um, the one who loves their neighbor has fulfilled the law really means that they do it. Love does the law. Love puts the law into practice. If you want to even be simpler, use simpler language, you might just simply say this, that when we love, we do what God wants. We carry out his will and his ways. You see, we typically look at the law and we have such a negative view of it. The law cannot save. Jesus abolished the law. Amen. We have to understand that the law also reveals God's will, God's ways. It doesn't justify us, the law. No, faith does, right? No. When we do God's, when we, when we, when we love others, we do exactly what God wants. We carry out his will. So when we love each other, when we sacrifice in the pursuit of another person's good, we're doing what God wants. We're fulfilling the law. We're putting it into practice. So when we give a sick, sick person a ride to the doctor, guess what? We're doing what God wants. When we send a note of encouragement to someone who's clearly been depressed or discouraged, we give our time to that. Our thought to that. Guess what? We're doing what God wants. We're, we're bringing about the purpose of the law. When we pause for prayer on behalf of someone who needs it deeply, whether we're with them as they share that concern, or whether we're thinking about it over dinner with our family and our children, 
over lunch, something that we've scheduled, some spontaneous thought that's come to mind as a need becomes aware. When we pray and we cry out to God, we're loving them. And we're doing what the law requires. We're fulfilling it. We're, per, we're putting the law into practice. We're bringing about its purposes. We send a check in the mail to someone who just recently lost a job. When we respond to the needs of a benevolent request and make those, our resources available to meet someone else's what seems to be crushing need. For just the simple necessities of life, like shelter and food and clothing. You pay for someone's lunch when you know they went out to eat with you and they don't really have the money to do so. All those financial generosities that we express toward one another. Guess what? We are loving each other. We are putting God's law into practice. We're performing it. We're doing it. We're putting on display his nature as revealed in the law. It's a wonderful thing. When you babysit for free because someone needs child care, needs help. When you take on more of a burden that you would think you could handle on your own. Guess what? When you help someone move on a Saturday morning, you're loving them. You're, you're doing what the law requires. You're doing what the, the, the purpose of the law When you speak words of grace instead of harsh words to people who sometimes deserve a punch in the face, you're loving them. You're putting on display God's nature, right? When you listen and keep your mouth shut for once, you just listen to someone and hear what they're going through and they're struggling with, you're loving them. You're putting the law into practice. The law and love are not at odds. No, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the doing of the law, the putting it into practice. Love is when we do what God wants. It's good. And secondly, we see that love sums up the law. Verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet... And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's not meaning to be reductionistic here. Oh, let's just reduce everything down. Just love people. That's not the point. The point is, is that the law uh, can be summed up concisely and understood in a framework of love. That here you have, as Ethan was talking about earlier, in his, uh, is that the prayer of confession? Prayer of confession? You have these commandments here. The, the second table of the law, the second part of the law, which obviously you have the love God part of the law, verses, commands one through four, right? You have this other aspect of the law, which is very much in connection with our horizontal relationships, right? That the, the, that the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, do not bear false witness, see brought up. For whatever reason, Paul excludes it here. I don't know. The point is, he's not meant to give an exhaustive list, but he's meant to say that when it comes to the commands of God that relate to 
our relationships, basically, if you want to just see them within a framework, a proper understanding, it's understanding this is all about love. God's prescriptions. Living out his love in the context of biblical community. Every command of scripture can be summed up in the two. Love God, love neighbor. That's what Jesus said, right? In Matthew chapter 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commands, what? All the law and the prophets depend, or they hang on them, right? So love sums up the law. That's why they do not uh, compete with one another. Notice what Paul does not say. Paul does not say love puts an end to the law. It's not what he says. Kevin DeYoung says this, that some Christians make the mistake of pitting love against law, as if the two were mutually exclusive. You either have a religion of love or a religion of law. But such an equation is profoundly unbiblical. Friends, let us not pit love and law against one another as competing forces. That to truly understand love is to recognize the legal nature of it, especially when it comes to experiencing the joy that love has. Love is not at odds with or competing with God's law. Love is not a trump card that we play when we're confronted with the truth about something. Right? You know Ephesians chapter 4, that growth in Christ-likeness brings together two uh, things that we could easily pit against each other, but actually, and we understand the way it, love is and the nature of truth, that they work hand in hand in bringing about our maturity, right? Speaking the truth in love, we are in all things to grow up into him who is the head. That truth and love work together. So we don't use love as a trump card to wipe away our obligation to the truth. They're not at odds with one another, truth and love, law and love. Love is not an excuse to permit law-breaking. God's love for us does not mean we can do whatever we want. Right? And there's a whole ethic out there that you will hear that it's all about love. That we do not have to live in reference to God's expectations in His ways and His will. That we can do whatever we want. And don't judge me for it. You see, that's a distortion of love. That's confusion about the relationship between law and love. There's something so much more beautiful about biblical love. Lived out in the context of Christian community. That we cannot, should not miss. By putting these two things against each other. You see, love in the context of law, a covenant, intensifies our joy. That's what law does. Love in the context of law intensifies our joy in the experience of it. Law intensifies love. It doesn't minimize it. Tim Keller talks about this in his book on marriage, The Meaning of Marriage. If you've not read that book, please do so. Please pick it up. 
Read it. It's extremely helpful. He talks about this very thing. In a, in a world that is so driven by consumer-minded relationships, what do I get out of this? And I'm in this as long as I'm still getting something out of it. Consumerism in a marriage. He's saying there's something very different about the kind of love that's experienced in the context of a covenant relationship rather than a consumer relationship. Excellent, very insightful. He goes on to say in one of his chapters, he said, love needs a framework of binding obligation to make it fully what it should be. A covenant relationship, he says, is not just intimate despite being legal. He says it is a relationship that is more intimate because it is legal. That the promise ignites the passion. That the legality intensifies the love. That's what God's love is like in the context of a marriage. And for sure, that's the kind of connection that we have in the context of the local church. We have a a binding covenant that brings us together based on the love of God in Jesus Christ. And we share that together. And it doesn't dispel law and dispel obligation. It reinforces that obligation in such a way to intensify the joy that we have in the experience of love. It's the covenant, the law, that brings about that intensity. We've been bound to Christ in love, covenant. We've been bound to one another in that love. And so when we talk about the obligation of loving one another, it makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? It is indeed an eternal obligation, but oh, it's beauty. What a joyous privilege that loving one another is. It's both and. I think about our marriage. Doreen and I, the joy, guess what? It's intensified, and, 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 and uh, I rest in it more because it's legal. It's based on promise. She's not taking, she's not going to grab the keys someday and just drive away. I don't have to worry about that. I can be myself. I can be honest about my struggles, honest about my sins. I can be authentic. She can know my real self because it's in the context of promise. I can give myself all, the, I can serve her, I can, I can come alongside her without thinking, oh man, I'm going to lose joy in this process. No. The law, the, the covenant, the promise reinforces all of that. That's what we have in the body of Christ. We're bound to Christ, bound to one another. Love has been provided to us, poured out into our hearts, and now we share that love with one another. It makes all the sense in the world. And it is so good. You cannot find this kind of love or experience in any other human relationship than in the body of Christ. Everything that the culture craves out there and wants in love, it's, it's here. It's in the body of Christ. It's in lo- the loving connection that brothers and sisters in the family of God share and know. All the promises of the world about love and freedom and spontaneity, don't believe it for a a second. Rest in and, and enjoy the promises, the covenant that God has made with his people, for that alone intensifies 
the joy and the experience of it. It is an uh, obligation, yes. We're commanded to love. But it is a joyous privilege that God wants to share with his people. You say, where does that come from? If you remember the end of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, maybe you get insight into really what's going on. Is God just prescribing love? Hey, everybody, you better love each other. Is that really the, the motive? You better give yourselves up for, 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 for the good of other people. Is that how we see this? This law that is laid down for us? Maybe. Maybe that's how we hear it. But really, if you look at God's purposes and why he's saving a people, what his intention is in in the heart of God, the plan of God, you read that whole prayer, it's such an intercession of Christ to his Father on behalf of his people. So much joy and love, willingness to obey and submit that Christ shows to his Father. He wants so much for his bride. You read this. So much. So much more than temporal bliss and happiness in this life, but eternal glory, knowledge, presence. Wants his people to, to be in his presence, to know him. This is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God. He wants unity for them, oneness. And then he concludes this long prayer to the Father by saying this. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me, talking about his disciples. And then verse 26 he says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Why? For what result? That the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. It's like the heart of God, not to just command love, but to share it. That's the kind of God that we worship and know. Central to the purposes of the gospel is that the Father and the Son long to share the love that they have shared throughout all eternity with us. May they know the love that we have known in their midst. So in commanding love, Paul's commanding us a share in the very love the Father has shared with the Son. Isn't that wonderful? Sharing in the love of the Father and the Son. A love that is provided is one that is prescribed. That's what I want you to see. It's an obligation, and yet such a joyous privilege that we have. So pay back your debts, and keep loving each other, Renovation Church, and never think for one minute that that obligation and debt will ever be fully paid. Rest in the joy of it. And if you're struggling 
today, and I know this is for me, I can struggle to genuinely love, genuinely desire to lay down my preferences, my comforts, my resources, my time. I genuinely can struggle to love in that way. And the only remedy, the only weapon that has ever helped me to move from no thanks, not interested, through the pathway of, okay, I'll do it even though I don't feel like it, to I just want to give myself for the sake of someone else, is by interacting and thinking about the love of God in Jesus Christ that he so willingly shared. So if you're having a hard time loving, go to God. And remember and rejoice in the love that he has provided for you in Christ Jesus. Because you can't give to anyone what you have not received from him. You don't have it in you to give to another what you have not received from him. So if that's for the first time today, I have never received love from God. Please receive it today. In simple ways that we've communicated. Receive God's love in Christ so that you might give it. But some of you may be so disconnected from that love. You haven't read your Bible. You haven't thought about the gospel. You haven't prayed. You haven't worshipped. You haven't spent time with another brother or sister in Christ who reminds you of this kind of love. Do that. Do that. Spend time in the scriptures. It's like plugging into divine love. Spend time in prayer. Remind yourself of the hope and the goodness of Christ. Receive love so that you can give it. Because if you don't do that, more and more you'll find yourselves indifferent, selfish, and, to be quite honest, miserable. Love comes from God to us to be enjoyed and reciprocated in the context of the church. Don't stop loving. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, in heaven, your love is eternal. Your love is good. Your love is sacrificial. It is generous. It is gracious. It is merciful. Your love is holy. Your love is true. Your love is undeserved, and yet your love is freely given to those who indeed in their sin deserve wrath and are your enemies. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, how vast it is. Praise you, O God, for demonstrating your love in Christ on the cross for our sins. Praise you that it is not just simply an emotion but as a decisive sacrificial action. Oh God, we pray that that kind of love would be on display in this body and even what we didn't even get into this morning in the context of this community. May we know your love. May we give your love. And may this kind of love be displayed for every man, woman, and child in North Syracuse and every uh, soul in the suburbs of, uh, of Syracuse, New York. May your love reach to the heavens, reach to the skies, and may it, be, may it shine forth from this local body. If there's anybody here today that's hurting and alone and confused 
and frustrated and isolated, feels like nobody loves them, I pray that they would know that while no one in this life loves them, you do. In Jesus Christ. We pray that there's anybody here with a cold heart, who's grown indifferent and selfish, and is ignoring the needs of others, and is really living in self-preservation rather than self-sacrifice. I pray that you would warm their heart today. Warm their heart, God. Set a fire in our soul for the love and care of others. We would be more willing to just give our money, give our time, give our emotion, give our ears, give our words, give our homes, take care of somebody else. Simply put, may we live as you live. May we love as you love. All for your glory. All for your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.